Well then, we might as well jump on in. <laughs> yeah, we'll probably have some late comers. I know I saw Craig out there roaming around. <laughs> as Craig does. Um, but I wanted to open this morning <clears throat> with the psalm of the day. So I did not actually choose either the psalm or the prayer until about five minutes ago. Um, and the psalm of the day is taking the date and adding 30 until you get to a psalm that you like, <laughs> basically. Uh, Don Whitney uses it as the method for praying the Bible. How long does it take you through all of them then? A month. If you read them every day, oh, yeah. all five them, every day. Otherwise, it'll take 150 days, yeah. which <laughs> you don't do math on the weekends, but you can do the math. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, today we've got Psalm 73, and then I will jump right into a prayer written by Martin Bucer, who was an encourager to John Calvin, I believe, in Geneva. Um, Just on the topic of encouragement after the sermon this morning. So, uh, I'll read Psalm 73 and then pray and we will get into our topic. So, it says, A Psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice, loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them, and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean, and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forevermore. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. Almighty, gracious Father, 
Since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant that our hearts, freed from worldly affairs, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith, so that we may rightly discern your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness to your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Any thoughts on the psalm or the prayer? Let's see where the first verse of the song we sung today comes from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Maybe that's why I was drawn to it. (laughs) I just think Psalm 73 is so interesting because he's like, until, what verse is it? Until verse 17, mm-hmm. it seems pretty, pretty. I don't want to say doom and gloom, but Asaph is looking at the people around him and he's like, look, why are they doing so well and I'm not? But then he goes to the sanctuary and worships and realizes any who are separated from God in this life will be in the next as well. And he says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. So he, his focus is reset by worship, uh, which is instructive for us. So, um, let's see, two weeks ago we wrapped up our discussion on God. Um, and like I said, we did an in-depth study and mined the depths and came away with a perfect and complete picture of God in two weeks, two hours more specifically. Um, That's not true at all. Um, There's much more we could have said, much more we could say on each of these topics, I'm sure. Uh, But we started with God because the foundation comes from there. I even was making the case that the four most important words in all of Scripture are, in the beginning, God. Uh, and if we if we get off course in those first four words, uh, the rest of the book is just going to make less and less sense. It's it's not a book that is written um, about us. It's written to us to tell us who God is and what He has done for us in Christ. And that's that's really the goal, the hope of this class, that we will better be able to see that all of Scripture tells one story. So yes, there are 66 books that make up uh, the Bible, as we call it, um, and there are some, what is it, 30-something different authors over a time span of 1,400 years. However, they're all telling the same story, and the story is that God saves. So the theme of Scripture is the salvation of God, and we see it on every page from Genesis to Revelation, uh, and that's what we're trying to set our sights on in this class as we uh, consider the different topics. Uh, we've looked at God and we are on our second week of looking at man. Uh, and, and I think what we've seen so far is that the, the theme of God's salvation, the one story that Scripture is telling that God saves, is entirely necessary. Because we started by, by looking at uh, mankind 
and we're doing so under three headings, willfully ignorant, passionately rebellious, and condemned to die, we got through, like, I don't know, barely anything last week. I don't know the percentage. It was maybe 30%. Uh, but we were looking at um, the fact that mankind is willfully ignorant. And so it is good news that God saves. Uh, and we looked at a bunch of different verses to make this case. Um, Romans 1.19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. The knowledge of God is readily available to all people. Um, God has shown his power and existence to all people everywhere. And if we continue to verse 20, we see how exactly he did that. For his, individual, in, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so this is a crucial point. We know that there is a creator because there's a creation. Now, we don't learn a lot about this creator by creation. We know that he has creative power, that he can, in fact, create. But we don't know that uh, we are in need of salvation because there's a creator. And so we talked a little bit about the difference between general revelation and special revelation General revelation is general because it is generally available. It's, it's available to all people. Special uh, is specific uh, in that uh, it only comes to certain people, whether it's through the written word of God or uh, even uh, the Holy Spirit in illuminating the word of God to individuals as they read it. Um, so where we were starting, this was last week, um, was saying that mankind knows there's a God. However, if we continue to Romans one twenty one, uh, the picture gets darker. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So we learn from that that God is worthy of our thanks. He's worthy of our praise. However, mankind does not honor him. They, they rather reject God. And the rejection leads to foolishness thriving and a circle of this rejection increasing. And I, I, at this point, I made a note of why I think uh, the work of the Holy Spirit is so crucial to the work of conversion. For someone to have their mind changed about God, to go from willful ignorance to rejection of God to acceptance, requires the Holy Spirit working in that person to completely change how they view God, to go from worshiping self to worshiping God. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit in anyone who has been saved. As, as he removes our foolishness, and removes our willful ignorance as we are confronted uh, by who God is and what he has done, uh, we are drawn by the Spirit to see him as glorious, as beautiful, as the only one worthy of our praise. Uh, then we jump to Romans one thirty-two. Though they know God's righteous decree, 
that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And this is about where we stopped last week. So I wanted to pick up here. We were asking the question of each of these verses, what do we learn about God and what do we learn about man? We had a little bit of discussion on what we learn about God, but we should probably just restart there anyway. So it says again, for although though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, give approval to those who practice them. What's something we learn about God from this passage? God's righteous. Took the easy one, huh? <laughs> yeah. He's righteous. And even if we were to pick up um, from our study of God, um, yeah, this is it here. Uh, we looked at God under three headings. Those three headings were loving creator, supreme authority, and final judge. God is righteous, but it also says uh, they know God's righteous decree. A decree is a kind of command. So God is the one who is in authority and who is able to make these commands, to make these decrees uh, that we are called to follow. So what do we learn about man from this passage, mankind? Yeah. God's just also is deserving to die. Yeah. And yet they still decide to uh, rebel against him. Right. Yeah, and that's that's kind of like the the height of arrogance, right? Like if if you know that there is one who is in authority and you recognize, okay, this person's an authority, but then reject that. I mean, that's the only word to describe it, is, is arrogant. Right. And so, because of that, Romans one thirty two says, which we will talk about more later, uh, they deserve to die. Mankind deserves to die because of their rejection of God. And so that, if we were to stop there, we would probably, I think rightly, go home and just not feel so great. Because <laughs> that's, that's bad news, right? But we're not going to stop there. We will eventually get to some of the good news in, in what, what God has done for us in Christ to have someone die in our place. And that is the Lord Jesus, and we will spend an entire week discussing that. Well, <laughs> it'll probably be more than one week, let's be honest. But um, we will look at the work of Christ uh, that has overcome the death that we deserve. So the question I wanted to ask about this passage after what we learn about God and what we learn about man is what do you think it means when it says, though they knew God's righteous decree. So, 
what I'm asking is, what do you think Paul is referring to by saying God's righteous decree? I would think based off of the verses that come before, he's referring to the created order of nature. Um, the things that through creation can be plainly seen as good, um, as well as that inbuilt moral conscience, the sense of right and wrong. Yeah. Um, and going contrary to that. Right. Yeah, so, so God is loving creator, supreme authority, and final judge, and he creates in such a way that is ordered. Uh, there's the one verse in Corinthians, do everything decently and in order. Um, I think that's kind of taking a step from, from even what Brandon is mentioning, that <clears throat> God created, and he, he didn't just create haphazardly. We When we looked at the days of creation, we saw there was progression that he created uh, and separated the land from the water before he created fish, right? So, so the fish need the water to survive. He didn't create fish and then say, oh, I guess they need an environment to live in. He created intentionally in such a way that reveals what he's like to show that he's a God of order. And, and he has put this um, sense... That's the only word I can think of. He has put this sense within us as well. We are to image God. We're to be like God. And exactly what what Brandon said, I think what Paul is getting at when he says God's righteous decree is the inbuilt, inbuilt moral sense of right and wrong. So there's a verse in Jeremiah which speaks of the law being written on the hearts of mankind. Now, there are some, some New Covenant implications that we'll have to discuss at another time. But when God creates, He creates us in such a way that we are in His image. And because we are created in His image, we are like Him in certain ways. I think one of the ways that, that all people are, right, are like Him is that we know right and wrong. Now, knowledge of right and wrong does not mean that we will always act in accordance with that knowledge. If you want to see this on full display, you could come to our Super Bowl party tonight and watch Zay run around and and act contrary to what he knows is right. Um... So, so having the knowledge does not mean that we will live in accordance with that knowledge. And that's part of the problem. That's, that's what requires the Holy Spirit working in us to give us the desire to live in accordance with the knowledge that we all have. But then it even goes further in, in following uh, out of a sense of worship. But what I think Paul's getting at in this, this passage is we all have this this inbuilt moral sense of right and wrong, but the more that we deny the existence and power of God, the less able we are to recognize this. And so as we deny and reject God, as mankind says, you know what? I want nothing to do with this God. We, we are less and less able 
to live in accordance with the inbuilt moral sense that God has given to us. I, I use the illustration, it's akin to, to searing your conscience. So, so the inbuilt moral sense we could summarize as, as your conscience. When you sear something, think of what happens when someone is burned. As a burned survivor, I know this well. Heat damages the nerves in such a way that you can no longer feel the pain. And I think this is what happens when mankind willfully ignores and rejects God. They become less and less able to feel the sense of morality. And, and it's this vicious cycle. Because as, as they're less able to feel this, this sense of morality, they go further and further into their rejection of God. As they go further and further into the rejection of God, they're, they're less and less able to see and, and act in accordance with this sense of morality. And that's what I think Paul is describing in Romans 1. I think a lot of what we see in our culture today is because of this. Yeah, desensitizing. I mean, it's all around us. Right. Yeah, yeah and, and, and even he says they, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's such a big thing, that, that approval. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good thing, is what they're telling us. Right, yeah. yeah. It's encouraging. Well, I think going back to verse 25, and I don't know, maybe this was discussed last week, but um, exchanging the truth about God for a lie, worship and worship and mm. serve the creature rather than the creator. Mm-hmm. I think there's a comfort in in worshiping or elevating or giving approval to someone who you feel is kind of equal mm-hmm. because then actually it elevates you as well instead of looking at God and seeing the chasm yeah. between that you see someone like oh wow they're great that's awesome I yeah. can do that also right it lifts you up yeah so it's giving approval to to others but because you're doing it yourself it's like okay we're all in this together we're, we're yeah. all terrible but <laughs> great, right, right. Kind of awesome. yeah so it, yeah. It, it also is a way of elevating yourself because you don't see your position and and how you relate to God, you're, you're seeing yourself as all of these people. Yeah. This is, I can do this. I can do better than that. Absolutely. I saw a quote, I don't know, at some point, scrolling through Instagram recently, uh, from Paul Washer. And he applied the similar thing to Christians specifically. And he said, if you want to see if you're being faithful, following Christ, don't, don't look to the people around you. Look to the Word of God. And so we we have the standard that we are called to. Now, obviously, we can have good examples of people following well, but the standard is set by the Word of God. We need we need the um, I always get this mixed up. We need the horizontal righteousness, not the vertical righteousness of of looking at people around us and saying, "Oh, well, Brandon's doing it." So and he's a he's a faithful follower of Jesus. So if he's doing it, I'm going to do it, and that just doesn't go well for anyone. It's a pride thing. Yeah. Because you're looking for that approval from man, mm-hmm. and it's easier to get it from your buddy sitting next to you than it is from <laughs> yeah. God. Yeah. 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 And so then, as this text says, <clears throat> this rejection and this downward spiral. The result of this 
is that we deserve death. So, so if we think of it in, in this terms, it's high treason against the supreme authority of the universe. We are rejecting the God who created all things and saying to him, no, you know what, I actually don't want anything to do with you. And so th- mankind knows God exists, but chooses to ignore him. And then also chooses to give approval to those who are doing the same thing. All the while knowing what is deserved. So the willful ignorance of mankind deserves death because God has made himself known. Uh, Even the Psalms speak to this fact. uh, And I think, I don't have it up there, sorry. Uh, Psalm 19, 1 and 2, which I I just want to read because I think there's, there's a really interesting... Um, doctrinal takeaway if I can say it that way so Psalm 19 verses 1 and 2 is what I have on your sheet it says the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge there is no speech There are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Why is it that verse 2 says, Day to day pours out speech, but then verse 3 says there is no speech. Well, the second part of that verse is another negative, so there is no speech. Um, that is not heard. So there's no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. So it's commenting that the day-to-day um, pouring out of speech is heard by all. So, I guess to ask it this way, what is speaking in verses 1 through 3? The heavens. Yeah. It, it's a metaphorical speech. And this, this, is, this is general revelation on display. The heavens declare the glory of God. They are every day speaking of the Creator. And, and they don't... You know, the heavens, they don't have words like, like we're vocalizing. They just simply stand as testimony to the Creator. And they do it every day. <laughs> day to day pours forth speech. So, Psalm 19. It's, it's interesting. And then it goes, if you keep reading through Psalm 19, it moves from general revelation to special revelation because it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And it just tells us what the word of God is to us. 
So, so Psalm 19, the heavens are declaring the glory of God and the sky is proclaiming His handiwork. And by this, we know there is a God. And yet, mankind willfully rejects this. So, this is an important point. Very important point about mankind. No one is born an atheist. Atheism is a conscious choice to ignore God. The evidence is overwhelming. And yet, there's rejection. Mankind is not not helplessly ignorant or even neutral. I think the testimony of Romans 1 specifically is that mankind is willfully ignorant. According to James 2.19, not even the demons are atheists. Okay, they, they believe God. They, they don't believe God. They believe and they shudder. So they stand in fear of God, yet unwilling to accept his authority as God. They refuse to submit. And so this means that in line with Psalm 14.1, the rejection of God is the height of foolishness. He who says in his heart, there is no God, is a fool. So mankind is willfully ignorant. Romans 1 says all people know God exists. Some choose to actively reject that knowledge, which leads to our next point, that mankind is passionately rebellious. Uh, mankind's sin in Genesis 1-3, to which we did spend some time looking at, demonstrates a remarkable parallel to Romans 1. God lovingly provided all things for mankind and even made himself and his rule very clear through his goodness and power displayed in creation. And even though there is overwhelming evidence of God in creation, what does mankind do with this knowledge according to Romans 1, 18 to 3.20? I think there are three things. First, they suppress the truth. Secondly, they refuse to give thanks. And thirdly, they worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. So in short, mankind rebels against the truth and does what God commands is not to be done. But how does God respond to this rebellion? I think this is also important. In Romans 1.24, we read, Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts, in the lusts of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. In 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. 
Further, women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and likewise men. And then in verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. There's a a phrase repeated in all three of the verses in 24, 26, and 28. What is it? Yeah. He gave them up. Oh, was that, is that not terrifying? Like, uh, I mean, if we're thinking about this <clears throat> as those who are in Christ, it's not. Because we are resting in his sure hold on us instead of our weak hold on him. But but if if we are thinking of those who are willfully ignorant, who are rejecting God, who are passionately rebellious. I think it's terrifying to see that he delivers them over. In essence, what God is saying is, you want your idol? You can have it. Like You want anything but me? Here you go. And, and, and almost as if to say, like, He's removing his hand from their lives. Ephesians 4 goes a little bit further in verses 17 to 19 in explaining this. And it says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That that, that last phrase, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is the result of, of God giving them up. I think the bleakness is not like if I think of, of, of this as a, as a parent and my, my son is trying to do something I'm like you know that's not going to work that way you're going to pinch your finger you're going to whatever sometimes I do step back and say you mm-hmm. know what? here's where you can learn yeah. and then it happens like see this is what it's like. there's no positive spin to this like giving giving them up to what they want is is them headed towards eternal separation it's not like and then you'll learn so now right. people just keep going and going yeah. and going and then that's their their ultimate end so yeah. i think that's kind of the the weight of that as right like, mm-hmm. not like there's no chance for <clears throat> sure sure yeah that it's not like a teaching lesson where our hope is that then they'll realize oh i don't find fulfillment and right that yeah. is very very bleak feeling yeah it's exactly different. it's different from us as believers because we sin and fall short and then it does end up a teaching moment because right. God lets us go through the consequences of our sin. Um, he lets us face the, the damage that sin causes, but to teach us and um, correct us and admonish us. Um, so, yeah, there is that difference there between the those of us who are erected in or holding or being held by Christ and those yeah. apart. Yeah, and then uh, even... Even the flip side of that that we read 
in Psalm 73, where Asaph is looking at all of these people, these wicked people who are prospering. And he's like, they're not, they're not struggling. Like they don't have these, these battles that I'm facing. And I think, I think sometimes the giving up can, can look positive too, where you see people who are thriving by worldly standards uh, and have no acknowledgement of their need for God because they've got everything they need. Uh, and so there's, there's even that tension of you know, giving them up uh, could mean they look very successful in this life, or it could mean they're, they're destitute. But either way, when God removes his hand, as Ephesians 4, given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It's, it's even kind of the opposite of what we see in 1 John. Or if you read through 1 John, I think I've summarized it uh, to some people before by saying uh, the lesson you take away from 1 John is that as a Christian, you get worse at sinning. Like sinning gets harder and harder for you. But I think what Ephesians is teaching about the, the fools... Uh, those who say there is no God and are walking according to the futility of their mind, they're getting better and better at sinning and better and better at rejecting God and not acknowledging who he is. And the only path that that takes is giving themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And so because they continually chase their idols, they're given over to it. And as we saw, it's this this circle that continues downward. Because of that, their hearts and consciences are hardened toward God. They're seared. And the consequence of this is our final point for this morning. That mankind is delivered. Mankind is... Condemned to die. Romans one thirty two again is what, where we saw that. For though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Those who practice such things deserve to die. Now I wonder if you can hear the echoes of Genesis 2.27 here. It says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam and Eve, as we know, ate, and by so doing brought death into the world. And that continues today in, in, in Romans one thirty-two. There's a correlation in our study so far, as we've looked at God under the three headings of loving creator, supreme authority, and final judge, and mankind as, as willfully ignorant, passionately rebellious, and condemned to die. There's, there's these connections. So God is the loving creator, but mankind willfully ignores his creation that points to the fact that there is a creator. God is the one who's in control. He's the supreme authority, and yet mankind is passionately rebellious not wanting anything to do with the law of God and and what he's commanded of us. God is also the final judge, 
And because of the rejection of mankind, is condemned to die. So, based on the interaction between mankind and God, in Romans 1.18 to 2.23, uh, it might be helpful even to give a definition of sin, because that's what we've been talking about this whole time, <laughs> that the rejection of God is sin. So this is a long sentence, but in the world of theology, most sentences are long. Um So I think I have it up here. There we go. It's my rejection. So sin is my rejection of the knowledge of God and his authority over me as creator as evidenced by my willful ignorance of him and my passionate rebellion against his commands. And that that helps even to make the connection of, of our discussion of God and our discussion of mankind. Noting God as creator, authority, and judge and Mankind is ignorant, rebellious, and condemned to die. But in, in short, sin is rejecting God as loving creator, denying his supreme authority, and disregarding that he is final judge. And so sin is taking all that God has revealed to us, whether it's creation or in his word, and rejecting it, denying it disregarding it. And so mankind's willful ignorance wants no relationship with its creator, rebels against his authority as creator, and because of that, will be judged accordingly. Uh, We could even maybe summarize this in Christianese by just saying someone who does this is is a lost person. They're lost. And it, go ahead, no. I think it's interesting to note too that um, God being the final judge and mankind being condemned to death, that even as believers know we're saved from eternal separation, um, we still sin and we still must face that condemnation of death. Even as believers, we still die. Sure. Yeah. 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 The physical death mm-hmm. still comes to us. So this rejection of God <clears throat> is one way to be lost. Um, I do want to even just note, and it's it's lostness still, but it, it it looks completely different than than what we've discussed so far, and it comes even in part of what the reading was for this week. In Romans 2, 1-5, that says this, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, everyone who, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or you, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? 
But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In, in these verses, 1 through 5, I think I put it up here, what reasons does Paul give for saying they are without excuse? They have placed themselves in God's position as judge. They practice the same things. Yeah. And and that's hypocrisy, right? Telling someone not to do something that you're doing is like textbook hypocrisy. But in this, what is God's response to their hypocrisy? Comes in verses, well, verse 4, really. Kindness, restraint, patience. Or if Jim were here, we would say long suffering. It's the King James word for patience, which is sometimes more accurate, I think, because it has the word suffering in it. But anyway, um, depends who you're dealing with, I guess. And, and so God responds to this hypocrisy with kindness. Now, do note that God's kindness does not mean he approves. It's, it's a patient waiting. Uh, and it's, it's even possibly the fact that he is drawing someone to himself but if this person, this hypocrite, uh, were to continue in sin, where are we here? There we go. Uh, what what is the end of those who continue in sin? What is their destination? Yeah. Wrath. Verse five. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath. For yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You're storing up wrath. I don't know exactly what that means, but it's not good. <laughs> and so elsewhere in Romans, Paul says this in Romans 10, 1-4. He says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So I think, I think Paul is, is helping us even to see a little bit more of what's going on in, in 1 to 5. Um, 
that this hypocrisy of, of telling someone not to do the thing that you're doing, there's this desire for righteousness, a desire to live in accordance with the moral standard that God has given to all of us, but we don't do it. Uh, and, and so Paul says his desires that they be saved uh, because they have an incomplete understanding of who God is. They're ignorant of the righteousness of God. And so they seek to establish their own, and instead of submitting to God's righteousness, they make up their own, have their own standards, and, and judge people based on their own standards. But I think Paul gives four descriptions of what we would call lost religious people. And he says they aren't saved, they have a zeal for God, they're ignorant of God's righteousness. And they seek to establish their righteousness according to works. So the people in, in Romans 2, 1-5 are not submitting to God's righteousness. They haven't given up their efforts to be righteous before God by their own merits. Maybe they're the, the people that Asaph is describing. I've got everything I need. I don't really need Jesus. Or maybe it's the arrogance of the older son syndrome from the, the prodigal son. When I read that parable, I probably more so identify with the older son. Um, but he comes back and, and he's like, hey, where's, like where's, my, where's my party? Like I've been here this whole time. I've been following what you've told me to do. I've been serving all of these things. Don't I get some sort of reward? And the father lovingly responds to him uh, and says, Look, all that, all that I have has been yours this whole time. Your brother, who once was lost, has now been found. Uh, and it, and it could I mean this this category of of lost religious person could look many different ways. Uh, maybe someone who shows up to church every Sunday, but come Monday morning, are a completely different person. Maybe they're praying before every meal, and yet only doing it out of habit. Maybe they're volunteering in youth group, going on mission trips, so on and so forth, and yet have no relationship with the creator of the universe. And so I, I, think, I think it's just even helpful to note as we, as we draw to a close that looking lost could present itself in two very different ways. You may be able to tell, clear and outright, or you may not. I think the quote from Tim Keller on your page is helpful. It says, Nearly everyone defines sin as breaking a list of rules. Jesus, though, shows us that a man has violated, a man who violated nothing on the list of moral misbehaviors can be every bit as spiritually lost as the mo- excuse me, most profligate immoral person. Why? Because sin is not just breaking the rules. It's putting yourself in the place of God as Savior, Lord, and Judge. 
There are two ways to be your own Savior and Lord. One is breaking all the moral laws and setting your own course. And one is by keeping all the moral laws and being very, very good. I think part of the reason why I say that is because I was the latter category. I was someone who was keeping all the moral, moral laws. And I, I mean, by all external appearances, looked like I was doing a really good job at it. But God was gracious to show me that I was not. Um, and eventually brought me to a point of salvation. Uh, but the rejection of God can look very different. And if we are going to confront the lost world, I think we need to have categories for, for both. Uh, because as we, as we go through this, this class, my hope is that we're better able to understand the gospel for ourselves, but also, because we have a better understanding, better able to share it with those that we might encounter. So then, for next time, I have the homework sheet, I think, at the back. Did I hand that out last week? Yeah. Okay. If you'd like it, there's copies on the back, which is reading 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 28, three times using different translation, and then answering the questions. There's a memorization of Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, and we'll look at that next week. And then a survey. I forget what the survey is. I mean, on the back of the thing, it says, what would the religious person look like in our own day? Oh, okay, okay. It doesn't really have a survey area, oh. but I'll write it down. Okay, maybe not. Or maybe I printed out the wrong page. Anyway. Uh, any questions before close us in prayer? All right, let me pray. Father, we're so thankful for the time that we've had here this morning, and we're thankful for your word. Uh, may we be faithful. May we um, accept who you are as our loving creator, supreme authority, and final judge, uh, not being willfully ignorant, passionately rebellious, uh, and knowing uh, that because of Christ we are not condemned to die. Uh, we pray that you would uh, be with us as we go from this place and help us uh, to walk faithfully according to your word and to do so as a response of worship to all that you've done for us. We love you, we praise you, and thank you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.